0: Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, I am so happy to welcome Christina Joy Lyles to the podcast. Christina, who goes by Steen, is the vice president of equity and impact for DonorsChoose, a national nonprofit organization that helps supporters of public education directly impact classrooms around the country. Through DonorsChoose, you can grant individual teachers requests for much-needed materials for their classroom. Donors Choose also has, as part of its mission, a commitment to equity and education. To this end, Steen led the creation of hashtag ICME, a Donors Choose initiative ensuring that students see themselves reflected in their teachers and in their learning environments. It was through the I See Me campaign that Donors Choose now has the largest database of teachers of color of any organization in the country. Prior to joining Choose, Dean practiced corporate law, focusing on mergers and acquisition transactions for private equity clients. And before that, she taught street law to high school students in the D.C. public school system. Dean's a graduate of Spelman College and Georgetown Law. She and her husband, Michael, are the proud parents of a son, Stone, who is five, and a daughter, Stella, who is almost two. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Steen. Thank you for having me, Carol. I'm so excited to be here. Of course. So happy to have you here today to talk with us both professionally and personally about education and parenting. I'm excited to hear about your research with Donors Choose, and I'm also excited to talk about parenting issues with you as the mother of young ones. I don't get to talk to moms of young ones that often, so I'm excited about that. So let's get started. Eight. So let's start by talking about your work with Donors Choose and the exciting research that you guys did, which ended up in the black male educator experience. If you want to talk a little bit about the IC me, which led into that, that would be great as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, okay, so Carol, let me just say, Thank you, because I, I hope folks understand just how much you have been integral in all of our orgs, all of shoes, racial equity work. So a bit of background on shoes and our work, but more specifically our racial equity work. About three and a half, maybe four years ago, we launched an initiative called I See Me. So it's hashtag I see me, like I see myself. And the whole premise of the initiative is that there is power in students seeing themselves reflected in their teachers and in their learning materials. And I know that you so deeply know this because you, alongside Desiree Rogers, were our Co chairs of the entire <laughs> initiative helped us to really raise the, the funds and the impact that we had. But, you know, it seems like such an obvious to me idea, right? Seeing yourself reflected. I mean, it just, there's so much research behind it. And so, so much of the work at Donors Choose around I See Me started with research, started with us watching what teachers were doing on our site, basically creating by the thousands classroom requests for things like books where you know, children could see themselves reflected or in science classes we had teachers saying, I want to have gender representation on the walls. I want to I wanna see black scientists on the walls. I want to have crayons for my kindergartners that aren't just like brown and black crayons, but there's peach hues and there's sort of all these different mm-hmm. shades where my kids mm-hmm. can actually so all that to say the initiative itself was about students seeing themselves. And I'm grateful to you because part of when I got excited about this initiative and worked closely with our our outgoing CEO, Charles Best, on it was this idea for me and seeing myself and the philanthropist supporting the campaign. Mm -hmm. And so, so much of I See Me was birthed, yes, with the research that tells us that it's important to see yourself because there are academic gains that happen. But there was also this part of it that was just important for our teachers and for our students to see themselves in the folks who are bringing to life the classroom resources. So we had like 23 philanthropists, including you, mostly philanthropists of color, who were the ones saying that we believe in this because we know it and we're going to bring it to life. So that's a very long winded way of saying thank you, because I was so excited to sit across the table and see myself in the philanthropist <laughs> and yes to,
0: to I see me. So that, that's I see me in a nutshell. Wow, well, I appreciate that <laughs> that that uh, explanation, and I, I have to say that I'm such a fan of the organization, and I just for people who don't know about it, it, your point about being able to encourage philanthropy amongst people who perhaps don't think of themselves as philanthropists, people of all hues is really important because through donors choose, you can choose a classroom and help a teacher bring crayons to these students. And I can't tell you, what a thrill it is when you realize that you just made this teacher's classroom dreams come true. And so people think of philanthropists as sort of people with boatloads of money who are just sort of trying to point at different problems and throwing money at it. But no, philanthropists are people like you, me, like everyone who just see a need and want to try to fill it. But this work that you're doing, this work beyond the individual teachers, this database you've created has enabled donors choose to sort of move into a whole new realm of impact.
1: That's right. That's right. So what you're sharing about anybody being able to support a classroom is so critical. So I just want to like double click on that because, you know, I consider myself to be really a social justice warrior, someone who cares a ton about the research and the work, but I also go to shoes to find projects, including projects for my mom and dad, who they're uh, retiring. They're retiring from teaching this year, but I would look for classroom projects where they were saying, hey, I need hurdles for my track team, or hey, I actually need a couple of different, you know, widgets for my, my students on the autism spectrum. So anyway, yes, I just want to underscore that, but you know, when we launched I See Me, I should probably share donor shoes. Our whole mission is to get resources into public school classrooms. Mm-hmm. Our founder, Charles Best, started the organization in the year 2000. So it was way back before crowdfunding was even a word. And to date, then, we began to focus on racial equity after we had initiatives like I See Me. And so, what happens when we built the campaign I See Me was if we're going to say it's important for students to see themselves and their teachers. And we mean by that teachers of color. Then we first have to find out who our teachers of color are on mm-hmm. donors' shoes. So we've gone mm-hmm. about twenty years of our organization not knowing uh, the race of our teachers. And so I see me enabled us to build an entirely new product on our site where any teacher today, if you go to our site when you register to say I want you know a new set of classroom books, you first tell us your racial identity. You tell us your gender identity. You tell us whether or not you were the first in your family to graduate from college. You'll tell us your college alma mater. So I'm always searching for Spelman grads. I'm also my (laughs) husband, searching for Howard grads. And so all of that means that when we built ICME, we launched this new product. And now after after teachers have shared their information with us, we have had more than 430,000 teachers share their racial identity with us. And of that, more than 100,000 are teachers of color. And so when we're talking about a database of teachers of color or talking about organizations or people who want to support, you know, teachers of color at scale, we're excited to have built the database that allows us to do that at uh, really sort of an unmatched scale
0: right now. And it's just really exciting to know. That is exciting. And so as a result of this information, you've been able to take it a step further and kind of dive into it. And can you tell me a little bit about what you've discovered with the Black Male Educator experience? Yes, So with I See Me then, uh, that really opened up
1: kind of beautifully Pandora's box of our org's racial equity work. And and over the past several years in our country, this idea of a racial reckoning and a focus on race has become much more front and center. So what we began to notice was, you know, now that we have this focus at donor's shoes on supporting underrepresented educators, so teachers of color, we want to key in on how we can listen to and learn from specific groups within that bucket. And we started with male teachers of color. And so we started out to say, what can we learn from the group of teachers who are the most underrepresented when it comes to sort of gender and uh, race? So, black men make up 2% of the teaching profession, which blows my mind considering how many black boys are in public schools. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we know that students do better academically, right? Graduation rates increase when. Uh, black children have a Black teacher between third and fifth grade. And so we said, wait a minute, let's learn more from like what's going on with respect to Black men or male teachers of color more broadly in the classroom. Like, what do we need to know so we can keep them there? What can we know so we can bring on more to the profession? And so uh, we set out to answer that question, and we launched the largest survey ever censoring male teachers of color. Uh, we surveyed 5,000 teachers of that, more, or nearly 2,000 were male teachers of color. And from there, we came across all these really incredible insights that were specific to the black male experience in public schools today. So I'm happy to share a couple of the insights that were really exciting to me, but it just was incredible to see that of all the different groups, even within the bucket of male teachers of color, the experience that stood out the most was actually for black men in the classroom. Oh, please
0: do share. We want to know. What did you discover?
1: Yes, the people want to know. Okay. So um, one thing we learned, right, was that Black male teachers are spending more time tutoring and mentoring students, and they have more students hanging out in their classrooms outside of regular class time than any other teacher demographic. And I can imagine you know, if there's a, perhaps a black male teacher listening to this podcast, right? If they're, if they're a parent, they're probably thinking like, well, yeah, like I, you know, I love to have the guys come hang out in the room afterwards. and I do a couple extra tutoring, but there's something about quantifying the thing that is a hunch (laughs) that is really important, both for recruiting efforts nationwide, for retention efforts nationwide, to know that Black men in the classroom are spending an average of 4.6 hours a week tutoring students outside of class compared to, for example, Black female teachers, three and a half, Latino male educators, I think that's 3.1, and then white Mm -hmm. male teachers, two and a half. We're talking about extra time that they're spending doing the work. And so we're talking about Things like, oh, if it, why are we struggling to retain, for example, Black male teachers and or what is keeping them in the classroom? We actually found that the teachers who reported these higher numbers of engagement with students were actually no more likely to report burnout. And so if we're thinking about Ooh. policy efforts to say, huh, maybe we should scale back the number of students hanging out in the classroom, then this study would suggest no. Mm-hmm. Uh, Black male teachers telling us this is part of what gets them excited about doing the work. Hmm. Carol, I can share maybe two more uh, insights that I'm love to know. Sure, please Uh, do. Two more insights from this survey. So these were all public school teachers. Was that graduates of historically black colleges and universities, so HBCUs, showed the greatest engagement with students of all. So black HBCU graduates reported spending 5.1 hours per week tutoring outside of class time, and then 5.8 hours per week on like mentoring and counseling. And that's compared to 3.9 and 4.3 hours for Black teachers who didn't graduate from HBCUs. And, you know, I want to, I should have probably worn my Spelman sweatshirt today, but I want to celebrate all the things HBCU. But something that we learned after talking to Dr. Michael Lomax, the CEO and president of UNCF, was that this really is quantifying what they call at UNCF the HBCU effect across all different sectors. So this idea that you want to recreate the environment that was so affirming to you at Howard, at Spelman, at Hampton, at FAM, and and make sure that your students, especially your students of color, feel the same way is actually what's happening here. And so Mm -hmm. this study helped to quantify the HBCU effect, which in turn means when we're talking about where to recruit some of our nation's most engaged teachers, a lot of mm-hmm. policy efforts could also look to um, recruiting from nationwide from HBCUs. So that's just one more insight that I especially was excited about.
0: Yeah, no, that is that is very exciting. And I've done a lot of research on HBCUs, which, as you said, are historically Black colleges and universities. And that extra care that the teachers there talk about taking with their students is something that teachers there are very proud of, professors are very proud of, and students, as you pointed out, really appreciate. And it, how, what a wonderful thing, I was talking about paying it forward, what a wonderful thing that students are now leaving those campuses with that cloak of, of attention and care that has been wrapped around them, and then opening that cloak and taking in the next generation. That, that's really exciting.
1: <laughs> I love that idea, that cloak. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> Did you have one more to share? I'll sprinkle in just two more, but they'll be quick ones. And they are, you know, something that was an incredible insight from the survey was that teachers of color, and that this is teachers of color as a whole, were more likely to have entered the teaching profession because they wanted to teach a curriculum that affirms the identities of students of color. And this is with black male teachers most of all. And so when thinking about this idea of, of wanting to teach and affirm identity, I know this sort of muddies into waters that remain very, very hot nationwide, but this idea of what some might call an extension of critical race theory, right, the idea that race is pervasive, the idea of seeing oneself in resources is is important, is something that we're seeing in this survey. Teachers of color tell us we care about this. In fact, we we care so much that we enter the profession because of it. And so I think there is much to watch uh, over the course of the next several years as we have more conversations about what is taught in classrooms, how that affects the demographics of the teaching population. If we begin to tell teachers they can't teach certain mm. items in terms of identity-affirming resources, then there are real questions around what else we can do to recruit and retain teachers of color, especially Black men in the classroom.
0: Huh. Interesting. So as we listen to these statistics, it sounds as if this is really, really valuable research for informing future uh, schools of education. But what can parents take away from this? I mean, we can, it seems to me that if there are parents out there who have teachers of color in their school system, they should really, particularly male teachers of color, I mean, these guys are working hard (laughs) and they should be encouraged. I mean, we know teacher burnout generally is a real, it's what happens. I'm glad to hear that these men that answered the survey are not complaining of it, but to me, it, it, it speaks to the need to support all teachers, but especially if we hear that these teachers are spending extra time. And I, and I say that because often parents enter into conversations with teachers, particularly if they're their children's teachers, with some sort of a wary edge. <laughs> and oftentimes there's a concern about how they'll go. But yep. before, you, before you head in, <laughs> think a little bit about all the good things that these teachers are really trying to do for our children. Is there any, any other thoughts on what parents can take away from this? Yeah, you know, Carol, I this one is probably
1: hitting home for me a lot because my son is 5, which means we're entering our first year of of beyond pre-K. Now that he's entering like the K through 12 sector and we are we're choosing to send him to public school, it really matters to me. I mean, some of the some of the questions that were on my mind when thinking about where to send him to school were the diversity, the racial diversity of the teachers at the school. Mm-hmm. Knowing the importance of my son seeing himself and his learning materials was important. So I was always curious Mm -hmm. about the curriculum and what's getting taught. And so, you know, what parents can take from this initiative really one is just, I, I think, and I hope, a deeper understanding of the real importance of keeping and having male teachers of color, especially black men in the profession. And I can at least. Personally, to be speaking from the elementary age, uh, because my kids have yet to even enter elementary yet. But the idea of finding a black man to teach kindergarten is tough. I mean, I've scoured Georgia to find out where there's some black men that teach so my son can be in that class. And so just one as a parent understanding and really validating your own, um, uh, that own feeling you have that like, of course, it's important to have a black man in the classroom. Now we have the research backing to show why. And so I think when it comes to asking the tough questions of the school, where are all the teachers of color? What are we learning? Uh, Because the research now is pointing to quantifying a lot of the things that I think, at least amongst my peer circle, a lot of fellow black moms are saying, well, of course we know that. Well, now we know it and we can prove it because we have studies continuing to show us the importance of having these teachers and having certain materials in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I hope it ultimately lands on maybe just more support for these teachers. I mean, Mm -hmm. my mom and my dad, my dad's retired military and and he's in his last year of teaching. Now he teaches JROTC at a really rural school in South Carolina. My mom is a speech therapist and did autism itinerant work as well in uh, public schools. And the support that public school teachers need is just, I mean, I would go home and see my parents like head to Staples or head to the store. And I would chuckle because I'm like, dad, I work for Donor Shoot, just cre- you know, create a project. But also they just were like, tomorrow I need these resources. Like I'm going to take in these snacks. And my mom, was like, the kids are hungry. I'm going to stuff backpacks and make sure that they have a couple resources. I'm thinking like the salary of a teacher is not one where my mom is spending her time on a Sunday, nor her extra dollars packing backpacks to send home to students who are hungry. And so the idea in this survey and this research of rallying around teachers and especially teachers of color, but then even more specifically male teachers of color is just critical because I think all they've been through over these past few years, and of course throughout their years teaching in the profession, we will enter a moment where we will be in a teaching crisis (laughs) if we don't Mm -hmm. actually have more of these teachers stay within the classrooms.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just have to add that you talk about your search for teachers of color for your young children. It reminds me that when my children were going to preschool, I'm in New York City, and we were looking at a number of preschools here, and and many of the preschools we were looking at had predominantly white student bodies. Mm -hmm. And I was very focused, was then, am always very focused on diversity. I ended up sending my children to a school which didn't have a very diverse student body, but they had teachers of color in mm-hmm. the school. And and I had a feeling, and, and it was borne out in terms of each of my children really has an appreciation for learning. And I had a feeling that the earliest days, as long as we had someone there that looked like them, and it wasn't a bad thing that it was the teacher, <laughs> because <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> that they would see themselves in the teacher. and. I'd send them into that classroom every day, understanding that they weren't in there totally by themselves. I mean, they were, they had, at that age, at the young age in particular, it's really important for children to feel as if they belong. And even if you're, even if they're classmates, I mean, they love their friends in school. It wasn't like they felt every day they walked in just because they, people looked differently that was bad. but at that early age, the belonging is important. And for a teacher to look like your mom, I mean, is really, it, it makes a big, big difference. So thank you. I, I, I'm so impressed with and proud of Jonas Shoes for this work, and and I can't wait for for the next great initiative that comes out of your your expanding database. Oh,
1: thank you so much for that, Carol. You reminded me of when I saw Stone, uh, my son, walk in, and it was after pandemic. We we finally sent him back to his daycare, and they had a. At the time, I didn't know who he was. I mean, I shouldn't probably know, him, but it was it was a black man that was working at the daycare center that was like in charge of like marching the kids back to their classrooms because we were no longer allowed back there. And I had so much anxiety about sending him back <laughs> during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But what helped just an ounce was when I got out of the car and my son like ran up to him and Stone has like a little Morehouse backpack. And I was like, Phew. and so you're right. <laughs> this moment of like knowing like at minimum Stone has seen himself from that door to wherever <laughs> he's going back mm-hmm. there. And that just, it you just can't beat that feeling of, of just knowing, so yeah, mm-hmm, me mm-hmm,
0: absolutely. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show. So, so now I want to turn to your parenting experiences. I want to fast forward, kind of through your how you were parented. I want to hear about where you grew up and your siblings, because I really want to focus on you and your children. But just tell me, where's home for you originally? Ah.
1: I wish I had an answer to this because I'm a military brat. Oh, well,
0: Military, oh. military, yeah.
1: So all over, huh? All over. I was born in Germany, and I've lived uh, in quite a few states, but my parents are in South Carolina. So that's where I went to high school, mm-hmm. and that's where I still consider home base is, is South Carolina.
0: And now, now your father was in the military, but your mom was always in the teaching profession. Is that right? Was she? So you grew up with teachers. How did they convey their expectations for you in terms of your education. Oh
1: you know, I I definitely have the best parents in the world, I'll tell you that. And <laughs> I I realize that now I think more as a parent. I'm like, I don't know how you did it. I'm sure I was a lot. Because I didn't know my little two are <laughs> a lot and they're amazing. So um, you know, both my parents are educators and I think they really instilled in us just this level of excellence, but also this safety net of like, you'll be fine. <laughs> you know, and I think Mm-hmm. so much of the rigor in our home, especially having a dad who's in the military, right? Like he had the perfect dose of like rigor and strict, but also met with like warmth and teddy bear vibes, right? Like it just, and my mom was like such an educator and I didn't even realize it until now And I'm seeing her when we go home as Nana and she's got like flashcards for the kids. I'm like, mom, this is a speech exercise. She's like, all the kids got to get ready for next year. And I'm like, this is great. But I was like, <laughs> home is always a place of like learning and love and a little bit strict, but not really. And it just, I think produced in us like, Athletes, because all like both my sisters, we all like ch- did cheerleading. We all ran track. We actually all went to Spelman, and my parents just really, I-, I think, instilled in us that like education, at least college, was not a question. And each of us went to grad school. So I, I think I very passively aggressively assumed that was probably not an option either. Did <laughs> not attend the grad <laughs> school, and yeah, and so I think uh, a household of learning, but as like the safety place, right, the place where all the neighborhood kids would just come and be safe, but also know that, you know, mom and dad joy would absolutely call your parents if you ever got into trouble as
0: well. So that community vibe was something that we completely loved as kids Now I really appreciate. Oh, that sounds great. So this is a conversation for a different podcast, but I just have to say, you know, you talked about being athletic and cheerleading. I have to say how impressed I was that, you know, you went to Spelman, you went to Georgetown law school. For practice law and then took a little detour to become a Jets cheerleader, <laughs> a cheerleader for the New York Jets. How impressive is that? So I, 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 that was just, I mean, talk about popping out of your resume. I was like, okay, I'd love to hear about that. That happened. I, I, I won't have, we don't have time for the whole story now, but just please tell me, I mean, was it as thrilling as you thought it would be? If I had on my sneakers, I'd probably stand
1: up and like allow you to see some choreography. I still know. <laughs> yeah. I, honestly though, it was the most life-changing experience ever. And those are still some of my best. I mean, I call them sisters now. I'm in their weddings. I'm still going to their weddings. Oh. We're doing life together. <laughs> I have a baby shower that I I don't like to travel during the pandemic, but I'm heading to New York for my friend who <laughs> I was in her wedding and she's now having a baby. But the idea of sisterhood and athleticism coming together on the professional stage, especially as a feminist, it just was was all the best. And I think, despite my dad being very surprised, when I told him I'm going to leave the firm, I was working at a corporate law firm. I'm leaving the firm, and I'm going to go cheer for the Jets. And I thought he was going to say, "That's it, I'm coming to New York to pull you out of whatever you're doing." <laughs> Instead, he was like, "Send me videos. How you doing? How, like, are you ready?" And so he just allowed me to jump, and I'm just so grateful he did because now, even though I'm a lot of my professional network comes from folks in the NFL industry and fellow tutors and folks who still are are givers and donors too. So it all worked out and it was fun.
0: (laughs) Okay. Okay. Just a quick extra check plus to your dad, because that's a serious parenting move. I mean, to be able to, you know, now that you're in your parenting, wearing your parenting hat, when you're, children come to you in their early 20s and say, okay, remember all that stuff that I did and we paid for? And and now, now I'm going to go be a cheerleader. I mean, yeah, kudos no. to your dad.
1: <laughs> You're not going to get a job. <laughs>
0: Kudos to your dad for giving you that space. And I applaud that. And and we all parents should aspire to be able to give our children the space that they need. So speaking of children, I want to hear about your children. I know that you have two little ones. And one of the things that I know that I want to talk a little bit with you about is that you're really focused on issues around raising children with special needs, because as you have told me, your five-year-old has been diagnosed as being on the autistic spectrum. So I just have to say that in a few seasons back, uh, one of my guests, uh, a wonderful woman named Apelsha Magruder, who also has an autistic son, she said to me during the podcast, if you know one parent with an autistic child, then you know one parent with an autistic child, <laughs> meaning that the diagnosis and the journey can be very different for every child. So can you talk a little bit about your journey with Stone and where you are today? Uh
1: oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'll try not to cry. It gets me every single time I think about it as... I now make my mom is always like weeping over everything. And I'm like, mom, chill out. But this is me now. Now I cry when I <laughs> talk about my son and my and my daughter. Yeah. So Stone, um, amazing, brilliant child, is on the autism spectrum. And that path from like pre-diagnosis to today, whew, quite the journey. And it's so true that of all the folks still in my community and in my husband and my my entire family community that's been supporting us. The journey just is different for each of us, and so that almost makes it more challenging and maybe more rewarding mm-hmm. too. but uh, the idea that you know what how autism shows up for stone looks really different than how autism shows up even for his friend who is in our in our Jack and Jill chapter, who's also autistic, but they just are very different kids so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I'll just share that the you know I'll share a couple of things which are mm-hmm. I think getting so the process was tough, and it still is, and it was tough, especially for one, a lot of it happened during the pandemic, right? So that just layered a whole bunch of things on top of that. But getting the diagnosis was really tough, right? It was kind of a long and, and a really emotionally taxing process The to go from like championing the, the the needs of your child and saying like, I think something's wrong. I think something's wrong to then get all the specialists to then get on the wait list for the specialists to then have the meetings mm-hmm. and meetings and meetings. And so all of the testing is sort of really, really tough for us. And just to be able to or to have to sit into a room and talk to a doctor and talk to a specialist and talk about all the things that like make your child kind of unique and quirky It's just hard, right? And the things he's not mm-hmm. doing yet. So all that to say, um, it was tough to navigate all of that. I think generally, but then to do it during the pandemic and then to do it while also be, you know, my husband and I are working full time too and, and raising then an infant. Uh, so it was just a really tough process to get the diagnosis and. I know on this podcast, you really think about our black boys. And so I think it would be almost negligent of me not to share that. I think racial dynamics that are at play when it comes to the entire special needs process are really present, at least for us, we're really present, right? Right. So starting with, I think, even my own, uh, as a woman of color, I think there's so much research and, you know, what happens in the healthcare industry when you're saying how you're feeling, how like doctors don't believe, right? So I experienced that quite a bit Mm -hmm. with like, something's not right at this check-in and sort of the consistent, like, I don't know. So over the course of, of of really years was just a layer that I think was in many ways racialized. And we had to have a conversation about sort of listening and understanding that although in the medical industry, they're experts, I'm an expert in stone. <laughs> so I can tell you absolutely. that absolutely mm-hmm. that are special with him. And then I also think like when it comes to some of the cultural barriers, I mean, Carol, we were a black Southern family. So we, we grew up in church and you know, when it comes to cultural beliefs and and religion and the diagnosis, that was a little tough too, right? Because we believe in our family and the power of prayer. And then me and my husband also say we believe in ABA therapy and speech therapy and occupational therapy and all the different (laughs) therapies, right? We (laughs) believe in all these things. And so even the conversation about like, yes, let's place your hands on my son and let's pray for him. But then also, if you don't mind giving him a ride to speech, that'd be great. (laughs) Um, So that was something that culturally, was just a hard conversation to have about like, there's no reason that these aren't demons. I, I promise you that these are, these are just quirks and my son's really smart and he is autistic. And so I just want to share all of that I think has made it um tough to sort of just find our, our community, find our people, find our tribe. And I'm actually really grateful to the, there's some women in my Jack and Jill chapter. There's an entire initiative within the entire national Jack and Jill called We Are One that is specific to- parenting differently abled kids and uh, autism sort of falls within that bucket. And so just thinking about all of that is sort of a big part of how we got from pre-diagnosis to like, believe me when I tell you, you know, this is what's going on all the way down to now just navigating the day to day of, you know, ABA therapy and speech therapy and occupational therapy and finding the right schools. And then of course, on top of that, I have a baby girl who's, you know, a sibling to a kid on the spectrum and Stone is a neurodivergent brother to her sister who wants to play all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So all of that is to say, uh, it's been a lot.
0: I, I, I'm sure I know that it has, and and I thank you for sharing. I, I just want to sort of bullet point some of the really important things that you've just said. First of all, this concept of the importance and the challenges of being a medical an advocate for your child in the medical profession. And on another podcast this season, I've talked with a doctor who is really attuned to the disparities in treatment across. Racial lines, and it's very, very important. People are squirrely about talking to doctors. I mean, with good reason, you're discussing something that you don't know a lot about, and you think something's wrong, so you're anxious and you're concerned, and you want to have the doctor say, "Oh no, everything's fine, and believe him or her, but you just don't know and so everybody of every hue is feeling that, and then you layer on top of it this this sense that this doctor is not hearing you or has some different perception of how you are experiencing things so yeah it is it is really important that parents everywhere really hone your advocacy skills in in the doctor's office and and unfortunately you had a trial by fire i mean you kind of had no choice but you're coming out of this stronger for all of your children and for yourself because yeah. you know you're now able to understand that perhaps not intentionally but actually there's a there can be a disconnect that you have to be mindful of and then the second thing which man if i could just stand on a soapbox, a parenting soapbox, one of the first things on my scroll would be this concept of therapy and our cultural aversion to therapy. I mean, I definitely had it in my family. It's pervasive. I mean, I understand it, to your point. Sometimes it's juxtaposed against the church. In other instances, there's this understandable but real distrust of the process. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a kind of a touchy feely process. And, you know, it, and then there's also the sense of, well, we don't tell strangers our business. We, you know, we, we take care of that at home. Mm-hmm. And, and while all of those perceptions and perspectives have their validity, um, it's certainly, certainly with respect to faith. I mean, there's a lot, you know, Doctors have a lot of faith. I mean, there's not to your point. It's not one or the other. Yeah. But I, but I love hearing this understanding that you probably had all along, but you really had to come to. Of uh, you can do both. You can really be as focused on all of the things in the world how the universe works and and your your faith works to help your children but also there are things like you said <laughs> there are therapies there are very specific things there, there is research there is data there mm-hmm. so so it is I'm, in, I'm i'm saying all this to to encourage parents who perhaps they haven't had the opportunity or the circumstance to think about this but and this is just a bit of a diversion but i was having a conversation the other day with family some some family friends about this It used to be part of the cultural bias was that we didn't we didn't do the things that required therapy. I mean, our our people didn't were not depressed. We were not we were resilient bodies. You know, (laughs) we just we took everything. And now statistics for depression, anxiety, even suicide are just off the roof for people of color. And this bias against therapy in general it is detrimental to us as a people so i'm i'm just i whenever i hear a path a journey that takes you into having to have some sort of therapeutic assistance i'm i'm i don't celebrate that you have to do that certainly but i am glad i'm really grateful that you all were able to move through and and get there because i mean i'm sure you've seen it it matters it makes a difference
1: i'm so happy that you went there because you know i think your your platform uh in many ways I, just the other day when i was walking my dog which i didn't mention that poor guy because now that we have kids I feel like he's like oh yeah little Linux. <laughs> he's great. But um when I walk him I listen to podcasts, right? And I like I can time how I'm doing my podcast or my walk because I just you know 45 minutes and I listen to you. I listen to ground central <laughs> parenting and I heard oh gosh I'm I'm forgetting her name. I, I, I I'll think through what her name is but she mentioned something around her own experience, I believe, with postpartum depression. And I, I, what I appreciated in hearing her share it was it immediately destigmatized it because she named it and said mm-hmm. exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. saw myself in that because uh, I'm not ashamed to say that after both of my children, I really struggled with postpartum anxiety. And mm-hmm. uh, that postpartum anxiety was really tough, especially during the pandemic, when I think a lot of folks' mm. uh, anxiety was really exacerbated. And so all that to say, part of the self-care and a part of my quest for this unicorn space, this space where, you know, I can be my most creative and my, you know, create the next I see me, the the space that I need to get Mm -hmm. there actually requires Mm -hmm. a great amount of self-care, a great amount of therapy, right? And also just moments in which all of it exists together, both my gratitude exercises, my prayer, my attending right now for us, which is virtual church. And on top of all that, Mm -hmm. right. And the things that my son will need, which will include- prayer, learning about the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. Learning about Mm -hmm. himself, recognizing difference, meaning race and gender and disability and ability, right? So all of that, I think is truly, like you said, a both and, 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 Mm and I, that's Mm -hmm. like the goal that I have for my children to just be so free. (laughs) It's so Mm -hmm. joyful that they can name, that they have therapy on Thursdays, church on Sunday, Women tennis <laughs> followed by that. hopefully be um, okay with that. So, thank you,
0: much <laughs> Oh no, absolutely. Thank you. So, Steen, I thank you so much for that, and I'm about to wrap up. But before we do, I just I want to talk a little bit about wellness because our conversation has segued so beautifully to that. At my whole season, I've been focused on parent wellness yeah. and self care. Moms, particularly of preschoolers. I mean, during this pandemic, I, 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 it's often I. A, 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 the thought exercise of like who amongst the parent groups are going to be the most challenged on any given day. And I have to say moms and preschoolers are way high on the list. How are you managing to blend and balance career, home, child rearing? I mean, it's a lot. And, and you know, no matter where, you know, we talk about the pandemic, like it's over, it's whatever it is, it's not over. And all of the impact of it is still ongoing. Oh, How much time do you have for that one, Carol? (laughs) Give me a sense of the kinds of things that you've been doing to try to sort of manage all of this. You know,
1: I, well, one thing I'll share is that, you know, I love to read, I love to listen to podcasts. And so for me, that like solo time and space is really critical for my own growth, right? Growth that's just for me, like the things that make, you know, me not just mommy me, but just Christina really, really strong is... Uh, reclaiming a lot of the things that I know make me incredibly creative. I know that will make me uh, even smarter and sharper at work, right? Bring back some of the the New York Jets, like remembering the choreography and the ability to run miles at a time. Like all of that is important. Like all that's within me, even while I am a mom. And so a big part of of what, I'm up to now is just looking for every opportunity to reclaim that space. I mean, I'm reading a book now called Fair Play by Eve Brodsky. It's this idea of like reimagining the, the gender division of labor and homes and talking about this idea of like a fairness that, it, that lives. And I think the more my husband and I continue to have conversations about our modern interpretation of what it means to parent and, and run this household mm-hmm. as another amazing organization is more space and time that I have to say, great. I'm taking an hour long walk because I need to work out. You mm-hmm. got the rest. And so I think all of that mm-hmm. is my way of reclaiming uh, wellness. And also I just, I can always champion therapy. I just, it took me a while to believe in it being for me to your earlier point. And I will never look back. I, I am the biggest champion amongst all my girlfriends and all of us sort of swap notes on our favorite things to think about and take care of ourselves, including therapy. And so all that to say, I'm hopeful that this continues in a year from now we'll have even more space when we're hopefully closer to out of this pandemic and just in a normal state where joy and peace can just live a little more <laughs> evenly despite some of the up and down trauma I think that all of us are still experiencing here in the country.
0: Ooh, amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> so so, Steen, I could go on for quite some time as, as uh, and I'm sure we could, as you, you and I could go on for quite some time. But- I'm going to wrap it up here. And first, I want to say thank you, Steen, so much. This has been a great conversation, as I knew it would be. And I'm sure the parents listening really appreciate your hearing, your experience, your personal, your professional experience, and your advice. So one more thing before we go, a quick GCP lightning round. So four quick questions. You ready? Okay, let's do it. Okay. First, your favorite poem or saying? Oh, yeah. There are years that ask questions
1: and years that answer. That's from um, Zora Neale Hurston. I think it's from Their Eyes Are Watching God.
0: Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> okay, this should be pretty easy for you, your favorite two children's books. I mean, you must be knee-deep in children's books these days. Oh gosh, some days <laughs> the same book over and over and over. Um, <laughs> my son,
1: who's on the spectrum, is really tough for him to get haircuts. Uh, it's just really, it's, it's a whole ordeal. And so he loved the mm-hmm. book, I Love My Haircut which is by, I think it's Natasha Tarpley, but the whole whole book is like preparing a kid for the haircut and being really brave. And so I'll hear him like muttering the words, like while he's crying and getting his haircut, like, okay, I am brave. And so it's great that he uh, (laughs) sees himself. And then the other one is for my daughter, Uh, please, baby, please. It's by Spike Lee. Oh Oh my gosh. mm -hmm. That rambunctious child. Tanya Lewis Lee and Spike Lee. I know it's a great book. My daughter, I mean, look, if Spike Lee or Tony Lewis Lee are listening here, my daughter believes that she is in that book. And so whenever she does something that's, we'll just say rambunctious, she'll just say, please, baby, please. so she like knows that she's like doing the thing. So again, the power of kids like seeing themselves, I think both of them know, like, that's me in that book. And there's so much power, I think, in that, despite some Mm -hmm. of the after effects of what's happening (laughs) in our house, (laughs) diapers, (laughs) off at the beach, all the things.
0: (laughs) So tell me a mom moment that if you could, you just love to do over. Oh, okay. Well, I think my son's newborn years,
1: honestly, I, I would do over, I would do them over to sort of know and trust the confidence that I didn't have then to recognize that I knew I had the inner wisdom then I just didn't know it. Right. And mm-hmm. so it sort of mm-hmm. took, mm-hmm. it took uh, mm-hmm. parenting a little longer. I mean, it's been five years of parenting, so I, I want many, many, many more, but I would do over those years just and say, yeah, you got this, like, go figure it out.
0: (laughs) And finally, a moment when you knew you nailed it as a mom.
1: Ah, yesterday, Michael and I took our kids to just play at this, like, uh, it's like a field and a a big, like, live-work-play area. And our kids just were wild and loud and having a great time rolling around in the grass and it just was the most like I'm sure we were a spectacle because we always are when we go out to eat we always are when we go everywhere but it just like we sort of my and I looked at each other and just like gave a fist bump like eh, like those are our kids and like stone was like playing in the fountain because <laughs> he loves water Stella was like doing like barrels in the grass and we were just like Jesus oh well like and so I think in that moment <laughs> Michael and I just sort of had a moment of like this is, this is us. So that I felt like we nailed forgetting what was going on around us and just like letting our kids live, which is kind of hard to do when you've got little black children, but it was nice to let them just roam with privilege. And I think every kid deserves that.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And see, they present you with the concept you presented your dad with, you know, you, you will, you'll draw back on that moment where you're like, Okay, these are our children. <laughs> they want to go be cheerleaders. Let us let them do it. They are themselves. So good. See, it's-
1: <laughs> Carol, I will call you and say, "Oh my gosh, you spoke this into existence. Help me talk so out <laughs> of this."
0: <laughs> Steen, thank you again so much. I really appreciate that you were here with us today. Thanks so much. Thank you
1: for what you built, Carol. I mean, in I see me for being my champion for me, allowing really just. For you allowing me to be a part of this just means a ton because this is a part of, this is my unicorn space. This is my space where I get a chance to just be and I'm so grateful and I can't wait for the next thing. So the next Male Teacher of Color Initiative, the
0: next I See Me, I'm going to call you. Great. And we'll have you back and we'll talk about it. Thank you, girl. (laughs) Thanks. I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. Please rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.